So something I've been thinking about really for a long time, and I wanted to just throw some thoughts out there, and we'll see how long this um, video goes. Probably won't go as long, uh, possibly because I don't have as much content, but also on purpose um, a little bit because it's like, but something I've been thinking about, and I put it in the title, is how do we think about supernatural experiences post-deconstruction? And you guys have heard me reference this several times, that I was part of a, a version of Christianity, the charismatic prophetic movement. I don't know what to call it. We never really identified with a movement. Um, we certainly had relationships with other church networks and other churches. I traveled fairly extensively, worked with other networks in other parts of the world. But the one thing that we shared in common was a passion for the supernatural. So my thinking was back then, uh, and early on when I was getting into Christianity, was reading the Bible, specifically, you know, the, the miracles that were there. I mean, the Bible is just littered with supernatural uh, occurrences, supernatural phenomena, things like dreams and visions and teleportations and uh, third heaven visitations. The entire book of Revelation is said to be written out of sort of this heavenly encounter that uh, John the Apostle has. In fact, to be a prophet in the Old Testament, to be considered a prophet in the Old Testament, you had to have what was called a Merkava experience. You had to be caught up into the throne room and see God, or at least see the throne room. So you see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is kind of the classic example where he goes into the temple and he gets caught up into this realm and he sees uh, the seraphim and he hears the voice and he feels the cold touching his lips. It's a full sensory visionary experience. And then the prophecy begins to flow out of that. Ezekiel is another classic example where he sees this incredible vision in Ezekiel chapter one, where he says he sees a cloud and then the heavens open and he sees really what's the came to be known as the mobile throne of God, which is an interesting thought. The wheel within the wheel was a chariot. And in fact, the word Merkava comes from the Hebrew word for chariot. Um, also, when Elijah is taken up, he, he's taken up in a chariot. So you, you, you get the point. Uh, in fact, from that perspective, the baptism of Jesus, when heavens open and the dove comes and descends on him and he hears a voice, that's a Merkava experience. And so that qualified him for his prophetic ministry as he was going forward. We see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus, if you put that in its uh, really Hebraic context and its ancient Near Eastern context, then Paul's having a Merkava experience. Uh, Stephen, when he sees the heavens open, he has a Merkava experience. Um, in other words, seeing the throne of God, that's what the word Merkava meant to ancient Near Eastern mystics, especially Hebraic mystics. Now, according to Jewish writings at the time, and this was true throughout a lot of the Greco-Roman world in what were known as the mystery religions, which some of you may have seen me talk about just a little bit about mystery religions in one of my YouTube videos and looking at Paul in light of or in the context of a mystery religion, that he's propagating a mystery religion rather than an extension of Judaism. But one of the rules, one of the laws, was that if you saw the visionary experience, then 
uh, Moses at the burning bush, right? Like, like every supernatural activation for almost every major character. In fact, maybe every major character in the scriptures, you see a Merkava type visionary spiritual encounter that precedes a ministry of signs and wonders. And these things could be taught. You could join schools. Uh, there were Hebraic schools of mysticism. There were Jewish schools of mysticism. And as I mentioned earlier, in the mystery schools, there were uh, throughout the Hellenized world various different mystery schools where these things would be taught. But they were only to be taught to students. They were to be kept secret from the masses. And it was only to be taught from mouth to ear. It was not to be written down. Uh, and the idea was that you're learning the secrets and the mysteries of the universe. And if you learn the secrets and the mysteries of the universe, then you have, you are empowered supernaturally. You're empowered for things like signs and wonders. You're empowered for things like prophecy and predicting the future. And so these things were carefully guarded because they didn't want them to fall into the wrong hands. And it was considered that if you made this available, this information available to everybody, then you were, um, seriously transgressing and endangering the, the society, right? Now, what's interesting about that, oh, wait, let me come back. So Stephen, if you read the story of Stephen when he gets stoned, not in the Colorado sense, um, although I know we don't have an exclusive claim to fame on that anymore, but it's still fun to throw out there. He gets killed by stoning, by them throwing rocks at him. But you'll notice in the story that they uh, put, when he began, when he says, I see the heavens opened and I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God or however it says it in there. And it says the, his opponents, the, really the Pharisees and the, the Judaizers of the day plugged their ears and began to charge him and gnash at him with their teeth. It's a really gruesome, horrible scene that we find right there in the New Testament. Well, why did they do that? Why did all of a sudden they start uh, angrily going after him when he said he saw the heavens open. Why did they plug their ears? It's not because they were just enraged that he was declaring that Jesus was Lord. It was that he was violating that very principle that was embedded in their culture, that if you have one of these supernatural experiences, you're not to speak openly or publicly about it. So they're plugging their ears so that they can't hear this. And that's why they charge him and <clears throat> go so crazy. After him. So there really is value when you put scripture in its ancient Near Eastern and historical context. We can see some things that aren't very well seen. Now, the majority of biblical scholarship, especially on the Apostle Paul, uh, has really looked at Paul as though he were a rabbinic Jew and a Pharisee. There are a few, <laughs> Alan Siegel being one uh, notable scholar, who's Jewish, not Christian, who introduced this idea that Paul was a mystical scholar, that he had a Merkava experience, and that he was preaching Christ out of that context. So, again, that may be too much information for some of you, but I think it's interesting. <clears throat> the point is that people in the Bible would have these mystical visions or like I said, out-of-body experiences up into the heavens first that then initiated a life of the supernatural. The antecedent to that, the predecessor to that, or where we see this outside of biblical literature, 
We see it all throughout uh, Greco-Roman thought. In fact, the word mystic or mystical, which simply means the secret, the mystery, that the secret of the universe or the secrets or that which is hidden, is very similar to the word occult. And again, I'm going to keep saying this for people. The word occult does not translate to Satan worship. It does not translate to divination or it does not translate to magic or any of those things. Although those things may be involved with the occult, the word itself simply means the study of that which is hidden, the study of that which cannot be seen. So both the word mystic and the word occult have to do with things that go beyond normal experience. Today we call that uh, word that we might use for that, we call it supernatural, or we might call it in more intellectual circles, the paranormal. So back to myself. So I'm reading the scriptures and I'm reading this stuff in the book of Acts, um, reading throughout the Gospels, <clears throat> and even in the Old Testament, and it seemed to me that Real Christianity, if it was practiced the way it was presented to us in the Bible, was a supernatural phenomenon. It was a power religion, let's put it that way. And so I was determined from the time I started, and partly because I had experienced a number of paranormal type experiences when I was a youth in my childhood. Um. Oh, I forgot. Sorry. Still getting the cobwebs out. I, I started to say the antecedent. I'll come back to my childhood in a second. The antecedent or the predecessors of that was the shamanic training and shamanic rituals that date all the way back to basically the beginning of time, as far back with humanity as we can possibly think. In fact, there have been ruins that have been discovered, and there is archaeological evidence to suggest that Neanderthals were practicing religious ritual and probably had some kind of shamanic practices as well. So when I use the word shamanic, I'm talking about the the traditional medicine man or medicine woman, the ancient healers. And the foundation for all of that was visionary experience. You can go on YouTube or you can Google shamanic journeying, things like that. The foundation was, in other words, the belief was, while, while they did use plant medicine, don't get me wrong, they did use plant medicine and some practical approaches to healing. There was this belief that a shaman could venture into the invisible dimensions and the invisible realms because of their experiences and bring healing back to the person. So, again, you see this embedded way before Christianity in every culture around the world, the Mayans, the Incas, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Aborigines, the Native Americans, all operated on this basic principle of visionary experiences first, preceding supernatural signs and wonders of <clears throat> healings and miracles and things like that. So back to me and my approach to Christianity, because I had had a number of experiences and had been interested in the supernatural and the paranormal since I was a very, very young child, for me, Christianity and the Bible, as much as it would offer me eternal life and eternal hope, I mean, I grew up with that. I, you know, my mom says I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years old, and I do actually kind of remember that. I was baptized a couple of different times. I uh, want to make sure I got it right. <clears throat> so for me, what was interesting to me was not the eternal life aspect of that, because I figured I had that covered. What was interesting to me 
was that scripture could and prayer could become a gateway into the supernatural. And it did. And it began for me <clears throat> with these sort of visionary type experiences. I'll never forget the first time I had it really felt caught up into a, let's just say right now, a state of mind that was transpersonal. So there's a whole academic field called transpersonal psychology where they try to integrate spiritual experiences with modern psychology. And the idea of transpersonal is that it's something that goes way beyond and outside your personal normal state of consciousness and identity. It's something that is completely other than an experience that you have that's completely other than your normal state of consciousness. I've had scores of those. I've had many, many, many of those kinds of experiences. And I've always been hesitant to talk about them because not everybody has these experiences. Even when I was in the church, I wasn't one of these that went around essentially flaunting all these experiences. I would talk about them, yes, but I always tried to put it in the context of um, something that would be edifying to other people because I was aware if I share too much about my experiences, then either I'm setting myself apart in a way that I should not, making myself out to be more or better than other people, or the negative impact that that can have on people where they think, well, my goodness, I don't, I can't really say anything like that. What's wrong with me? So t- trying to be aware of all those various different responses. And so I didn't talk about that a lot, but I could say, that my life definitely mirrored this pattern in the Bible where I had individual personal encounters, visionary type experiences, out of body type experiences, trances, etc. And after those things, then began to see an increase in healings, began to see some pretty incredible, undeniable signs and wonders and this type of stuff. And so, in that sense, it kind of worked for me. And in fact, and if you go to my YouTube channel, you can watch my testimony on my YouTube channel. My deconstruction process, though biblical scholarship was certainly part of that, but it was really kicked into high gear by a similar type of experience, by um, just laying down in meditation and being caught up into an experience. And when I say being caught up into experience, what I mean is a shift in consciousness where you lose sense of the material world around you and you enter into almost like a dream state. You know, one of those dream states, you ever had a dream that was so real, you wake up, particularly you might do this with a nightmare, you wake up and you're not sure if it was a nightmare or if it really happened because the the uh, sensory detail and the associations within the dream were so powerful. So in August 13th, 2016, I had that type of an experience that led me out of Christianity. So if it hadn't been for that component or that aspect, I never would have started questioning or deconstructing to begin with. But literally in about a 20 minute time period, I was, I, I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back. And then I shared a couple of weeks ago about some other experiences that I had when I was on my sabbatical. And I didn't even share the, the most, the most impacting ones because those are too personal and sacred to me. And I don't want to give those away. Uh, those are just for me. So then, you know, go into hyperdrive on deconstruction, go deeper into biblical scholarship, find the historical data, the biblical data, the presentation, 
about Jesus. First of all, the evangelical Pentecostal presentation of Jesus does not match anything that we have in Scripture today. Uh, we would cherry pick scriptures and try to put it in its context and say this is what Jesus taught. Now, anything that's alive is going to grow and change and morph. So I don't really have a problem with that. I'm not saying I just find it curious that we say the Bible is our source of faith and a rule of conduct. Yet what's presented today in the churches that I know of is nothing like the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of Scripture. Or the gospel scripture. And I've spent a lot of time, years, every Sunday kind of pointing out those various differences, trying to get back to the original pattern, right? So there was certainly that element of the intellectual reasoning and convincing. There was a thinking through about the nature of prayer, the nature of the afterlife, looking into near-death experiences, uh, and listening to people who had near-death experiences that contradict what we say happens to a person after they die. But yet I had this whole um, history and experience with paranormal. I had this whole history and experience with the supernatural. Um, sometimes I would even have paranormal experiences that would fit really, really well within the psychic community or the New Age community. This is before I started deconstructing. But they didn't fit well at all within a Christian context. And I wasn't sure what to do with those. And um, I kept those to myself. Uh, I didn't I didn't talk about those with anyone. And those usually happen in like a one-on-one sort of ministry context where I would get receive information. Uh, twice I know for sure from departed loved ones with very detailed information that the person I was speaking with and ministering to could not deny the truth of what was given because it was there were specific items that were mentioned, for example, or specific phrases, uh, very specific phrases or information that there, um, in, in both these cases, it was a departed mother. So those experiences weren't, were undeniable to me. I wasn't sure what to do with those. So you can imagine how this has been confusing. And as I've kind of talked about this more and I've put this out there more, I've found there are many people out there like this, like me, who want to be free from the toxicity of religion, um, have serious doubts about the veracity, the truthfulness of scripture, um, but aren't sure what to do with this catalog of history that they have of either things that they've seen or, or things that have happened directly to them. And so I wanted to take some time today and just talk about what do we do with these experiences that we had in the past and what do we do? do? Do we expect these kind of experiences going forward? Is there any value in these kind of experiences? Um, certainly they can contradict scientific information that we have. Certainly they contradict a worldview that is clo- that, that, that is closed to material experience, ordinary experience. So in other words, the, explanations come out uh that was a coincidence that was similar uh, similar to a hypnotic trance or someone's subconscious mind or um we all came into enough agreement in a meeting that or individually as we're in prayer 
that a waveform collapses or there's a multiverse theory. I mean, and who knows? There may be truth to some of that. There may not be any truth to any of it. The point is we can't really say for certainty because the actions or the experiences themselves, because they're paranormal, by the very definition, because they're paranormal or because they're supernatural, cannot be repeated necessarily in a laboratory. They're not necessarily verifiable, sustainable, and repeatable. And yet, they're very real to many of us. I mean, after a while, and this is certainly true in my experience, when you've had enough synchronicities about things that you prayed for, financial miracles, um, protection, um, meeting someone, having precognitive dreams where you dream about something and then it happens, or precognitive visions where you see something about the future, look into that, peer into that dimension, and something happens, or repeated healings that cannot be explained by medical means, by our current models of medicine, pretty soon... You, you you can't buy the it's an occasional coincidence line of thinking because it would be statistically impossible anyway. I mean, if you know, if we really track this stuff, we kept good record of this stuff and then run a statistic, run it against a statistics model, it would blow it, blow up any statistical model that's out there. I'm only speaking for myself and things that I experienced with people and in my individual life. So what, so I've been thinking about, you know, like, what do we do with these experiences? And so I kind of want to offer some reframes and I want to offer some ideas. I think one of the mistakes that we make is that we tend to want to apply scientific method to things that really don't fit the context of the scientific method. In other words, if we're going to say, well, science is all I trust, logic is all I trust. Well, apply that to your marriage. Apply that to your children. Apply apply that to actually any relationship. But I think the romantic relationship is one that's really poignant here because could you imagine, guys? I mean, I, I just I can't imagine our wives um, or the special someone in our lives um, or you know, obviously, I'm very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. So just romantic partner. Um, if you took a science, if you took a scientific method, logical Mr. Spock approach to that area of your life, I'm going to guess that's maybe not going to be the best approach. That's maybe not going to be the most successful for you. In fact, psychologists, sociologists, while there are elements of scientific method in the way that human behavior and the mind is studied, they're not the same methods that would be used in, like, physical science or in quantum physics and stuff like that. And certainly for history, let's look at history. 
history's not repeatable. History's not so, uh, uh, necessarily even verifiable, right? Because we just have fragments. And this is one of the problems when people say, well, okay, we're putting scripture in its ancient Near Eastern context, or we're putting it in the context of Second Temple Judaism. Well, there wasn't just one Second Temple Judaism. There was many Second Temple Judaisms, and they have to piece it together from a lost civilization, from fragments of uh, documents and fragments of archaeological information and new information is coming in all the time. My point is there's a completely different criteria and standard that's used for historical study that's used than what's used for uh, material scientific study and stuff like that. So what I'm suggesting is, is that we are confusing our categories when we're talking about, I'm just going to call it paranormal phenomena, and that perhaps right now what might be helpful for us is to put paranormal phenomena in its own category. And when we put it in its own category and we then we can begin to think about what are the rules that we want to apply to this paranormal phenomenon. So again, for example, uh our controls huh, even in the charismatic prophetic movement was if you have an experience that's not in scripture or you have an experience that contradicts scripture, we're not going to necessarily doubt the veracity of your experience, but the rules by which that is judged is according to the scriptures. The problem is <laughs> that the scripture itself Contradicts that. And Acts chapter 10 is the classic example of this because Peter is caught up into a trance and he's told to eat things that scripture says is unlawful for him to eat. And then he goes and joins with the Gentiles to uh, fellowship with them, which basically contradicts what was in the scriptures to begin with. So the whole movement, at least according to the book of Acts, of the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles comes out of a supernatural visionary type experience, a Merkava type experience that Peter has in Acts chapter 10. <laughs> and so we would tell people, well, if it contradicts scripture, you can't go with it. But Peter did the very exact thing in the scripture that we're supposed to use to judge our experiences from. <laughs> yes, but that was Peter the apostle. That doesn't apply to you. It doesn't count for you. So, but, but here's my point. You see what I'm saying? Like, we need to think about what the rules are. So back then, you have an experience. Here's the rules. You judge it by scripture. You don't have to live by that, particularly if you've deconstructed. But then we need to step back and we need to think, okay, how do we categorize and how do we think about these experiences? And so I want to just offer some thoughts, and I would love to see and read your thoughts in the comments if you're watching this. But Let's just deal with this sort of like I began talking about visionary type experiences or encounters with non or seemingly non-material entities. Because in all of these encounters, there is non-physical entities. So for people in a Wiccan tradition, they may work with the elemental spirits. And so there's belief that there's a non-physical layer of earth, wind, fire, water, and there are names for these types of elemental spirits that they work with in 
a lot of traditions, not just Wicca, but I'm using that one for an example. A psychic may be doing a seance or something and contacting the spirit in the house or contacting a lost loved one. And I know a lot of that's been debunked, but just because some of it's been debunked doesn't mean all of it's not real or not valid. Just because there are counterfeit $100 bills out there doesn't mean you take all the $100 bills and stop spending them. Like, I think we need to get out of this all or nothing, either or type of categorical thinking. Uh, all seances are bullshit. Um, because Harry Houdini started a tradition throughout the stage magician uh, culture, which is carried on by people like Chris Angel today, to debunk anyone who says they actually have supernatural ability or supernatural power. Now, they've certainly been great, and because they're highlighted as prominent figures going all the way back to Harry Houdini, they were able to debunk, you know, various different things, and that and that got a lot of public attention, and so that did a lot of damage to the credibility of things like seances. But my point is that in these experiences, there is almost always, if not always, contact with an entity, even just the simple use of a Ouija board is a contact with an entity other than yourself that you're asking questions to, right? In shamanic traditions, they are going to encounter power animals. They're going to encounter um, earth spirits. They're going to, even in what's known as soul retrievals, in the shamanic tradition, they'll go into the underworlds and find parts of yourself that were lost during past lifetimes, possibly even during this lifetime, that dissociated from you. What 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 we describe in the counseling world is dissociation. And they go in a visionary experience and they retrieve these parts and they bring them back to you. I've experienced a couple of those myself and I can tell you the results were profound. Now, whether or not the person that I was working with or the people that I've worked with on those, for me personally, were just tapping into an ancient model of modern psychology to deal with trauma and dissociation, or whether there is some uh, objective reality to what they're doing, um, there's still these immaterial aspects to the nature of reality. So what I'm suggesting is, because what I don't want to do is develop a cynicism. I don't want to develop a cynicism. I don't want to develop a skepticism. And I don't want to shut down something that was so enriching to my life, even though I'm able to walk away from the dogmas that were attached to those experiences. Something I found really interesting, when I was having these experiences that were leading me out of Christianity, I met an individual who was part of uh, Eastern religions and meditation and I suppose some new age type stuff, although new age is such broad label, but I don't know how else to label it or describe it or categorize it. Uh, he was seeing Jesus and Jesus was leading him into very fundamentalist Christianity around the same time Doreen Virtue. Some of you will recognize that name was also leaving. She'd written a bunch of new age books. She produced a bunch of tarot card decks um, she had a bunch of speaking engagements. She was kind of like, um, really a matriarch in the new age community. She had a experience. I believe it was in an Episcopalian church 
where she saw and had a vision of Jesus, and that so impacted her that she repented of all her previous work that she had done, <clears throat> and then eventually landed in a very, very um, fundamentalist uh, expression of Christian religion. So she's going through that process as I'm coming out of those expressions and looking more into the new age. And both of us are being claimed to be led through paranormal encounters. And, you know, if you want to call Jesus a psychic entity in this, in this sense. Um, and so what do we do with that? Like, how do we objectively look at it? Like who's right, her or me or this guy or me or, um, you know, I mean, Joseph Smith, the whole Mormon movement got started out of a paranormal experience. The Muslim religion got started out uh, of a paranormal experience. Judaism, if you believe the Mount Sinai account, uh, Christianity, if you believe the, the, the vision of Paul on the road to Damascus. So we can see how these subjective experiences, when they are imposed as universal truth for everybody, it becomes super messy. <laughs> so what I'm suggesting is that we look at this, these experiences as very much a part of who we are as human beings. It's part of our lives, whether we like it or not. Now, you may have never had any of those kinds of experiences, but I'm just speaking generally you can go as back as far as you want to in history, ancient history. You can back as far as you want to in philosophy. You can go anywhere in the world, and you're going to find that people all over the world were having this phenomenology. They were having these phenomenons of encounters with non-material entities, and it was changing their lives. It was initiating a power that transcends or seems to transcend normal everyday experience. And we see the same thing in the UFO community today. Uh, if you've watched any of the documentaries that Stephen Greer has done, um, or if you've read the book Communion or any of the books that, um, I can't remember the guy's name. That, uh, they, they made a movie about it, I think, with Christopher Walken about his life, where, um, and he, although he himself does not believe what he contacted were aliens from other planets, it sure got co-opted by the UFO community. Dr. Stephen Greer is a great example right now of someone who claims, uh, close encounters of the fifth kind. So I remember the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where they, the little gray guys come out of the ship right there at the end, right? But what's a close encounter of the fifth kind? A close encounter of the fifth kind is a telepathic connection with beings who claim to be from other planets. We see the same thing with a lot of these channeling type in the channeling literature. Um, what's her name? Um, Esther Hicks claims to channel a group entity that goes by Abraham. And so her materials out there is Abraham Hicks. It's always funny to me that people will type in Abraham Hicks and there's a woman talking. Um, but she claims to be in contact with invisible entities and through a telepathic channel, she's giving information to people. Uh, the law of one, the raw material, they're contacting what, uh, 
I'm sorry, um, Carla Reichert is contacting what claims to be a social memory complex. But again, it's a transpersonal entity that then is channeling information to her and she's channeling information out. One thing that's interesting is that every culture puts their experiences with invisible entities usually in some kind of a sociological context. So there is a sociological element to this. So for me, my experiences fit into a Christian Pentecostal charismatic context because that was my sociological reality. For people in native cultures, they're going to find their power animal, their totem. They're going to uh, commune with the spirits of Mother Earth. Wicca is more of a nature religion, a return to nature and a return to the patterns and rhythms of nature. So their experiences are going to fit more within the nature spirit and elemental spirit context and maybe fairies and you know um in north in north uh magical practice it's the it's the hidden folk right the the i think they call them the we folk um and so uh you, you you get the point of what i'm saying there is always a sociological context or explanation for these types of experiences uh alien contact phenomena is new, but really, if you think about it, um, you know, that's unique to last century when we were getting ready to, when, when, when there was a march towards going to the moon or, and nuclear power and whatever. So is it possible that, you know, when they set off the atomic bomb in whatever desert, you know, prior to bombing the Japanese, that it sent some kind of alert out to other species and people that are more advanced and more developed that then came here in spaceships. Sure. I'm totally open to that possibility. Um, but I just find it interesting that a lot of communication and communion now with aliens is happening on a telepathic level. In other words, the same principles, the same structure of the experience that they talk about are the same principles and same structure of experience that you find in the Bible or the same principles and structure of experience that you find in shamanism. The point I'm trying to make is this is a very human thing that we have. It's, it's very much a part of who we are. So I don't think it's a good idea to take our subjective experiences and try to impose those on other people as this is the nature of reality in a dogmatic sort of way, because I think we can see from the various religions that got started that that can create a lot of problems down the road, right, where they don't agree and stuff like that. So I guess I'm saying all of this to say, uh, to open up the discussion and start the discussion to say, what if we just look at these? What if we um, look at these types of experiences that you may have had, that I've had, or that Others have had, or maybe you haven't had them. Maybe you've had an occasional experience like that. Maybe you haven't had any experience like that. Yet, it would be dishonest at this point to negate the value of those types of experiences because you yourself haven't had them. When it's universal, it's to humanity as a whole, to humanity 
as a species. And so maybe in that way, we can validate our own personal experience, our own personal subjective experience, our own personal subjective reality, and allow that. See, if, 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 if we release ourselves, see, these are limitations. If you're a materialist only, if you're a atheist only, you've created for yourself a mental category that is a limitation for you. It is. Because any information that comes to you that may be contrary to that worldview, you're going to automatically reject. So you've put up a boundary and you've put a limitation on yourself. That's a limitation I'm not willing to internalize. I'm not willing to take that on to myself. I don't know what I don't know. I'm also not willing to invalidate all of my other experiences, and I'm not going to allow other people to invalidate them either because mankind forever has been talking about these kinds of experiences. And so maybe we need to look at them in a category of their own. Maybe we need to uh, validate ourselves by saying, yes, this is part of the human experience. This is things that people have experienced down through the ages, and I'm going to lower the stakes. That's one of the things that got into us. I think in one of my videos last week, I talked about these post-hypnotic suggestions that get into us in Christianity, and they're installed into us very early. If you were ever around a rapture fever group, now I, I, want, I want you to think about this. How many times did you hear a teaching that Jesus was coming back, that the rapture was coming back, that the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and all of these things were put into the context of newspaper articles and current events and to show you how this proves the Bible is true and that this lines up? I mean, for me, this goes all the way back to the 70s and Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth. Right. Or 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988. Or what about a few years ago, the blood moons prophecy that John Hagee and some of these other people were making millions of dollars off of? Or what about the Tim LaHaye literature in the 90s where he was writing books about it and trying to put Bible prophecy into its present context? I remember when the European Union was just starting out, that was the 10 toes. I remember when uh, during one of the Gulf War conflicts, when Saddam Hussein was still uh, alive and leading Iraq, he was the he was the Antichrist. I remember reading books, The Rise of Babylon, and these things would recycle about every seven years. Where's the credibility in any of that? In fact, in the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey begins by talking about how, according to the biblical standard, if you make prophet, prophetic declarations, future def, Few, uh, uh, declarations about the future, there's a verse in, I think, Deuteronomy 18, and it does not come to pass, then you are a false prophet, and under the Old Testament, you would be killed. You'd be stoned again, right? So he didn't even follow his own pattern. It's blatantly false and blatantly wrong. Time after time after time after time after time. Remember when they were telling us that the COVID shot was the mark of the beast? And if you take the COVID shot, you're taking the mark of the beast and, and how we're going to have to have these passports and we're not going to be able to buy or sell or go into other countries unless we have these vaccine passports. Yeah, where is that everywhere today? Where are those people that were talking to us and telling us about that? So every few years they sell this bullshit on people. But here's the point. Like, we get so focused on the prophecy, we get so focused on all this other stuff, we miss the hypnotic trigger that gets put in us, and that is in almost every single case of these Bible prophecy teachers. They say there is coming a time of a great falling away when when people will depart from the faith and they will begin to support a one-world 
religion and they put a trigger inside of you that says that uh, if you have an experience that causes you to contradict what they're saying, contradict their version of Jesus, contradict their version of prophecy, that somehow you're the one that's being deceived, when all along weren't they deceived? Wasn't the guy that wrote 88 Reasons that Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, wasn't he deceived? Wasn't Hal Lindsey deceived in the 70s when he wrote The Late Great Planet Earth or in his, his sequel to that, A New World Coming? Wasn't John Hagee and the group deceived when they said that Jesus was coming back because there's four blood moons in, in a year and this is some kind of sign that's proving that it's now time for the re- return of Christ? Wasn't every generation that said the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime, weren't they blatantly deceived? Weren't they wrong? Weren't they false? And yet... They plant this trigger inside of us that puts these really high stakes that if we question our faith, especially if we question it because we had a supernatural experience or some kind of supernatural phenomenon that led us out of that garbage, that led us out of that bullshit, then we're the ones that are being deceived. I mean, you can't make this, you, you can't make it up. When you step outside of it and you look at it objectively and you get out from underneath the mind control of it, the power and the mind control of it, the egregore of it, then you can see it blatant, plain, plainly for what it is. So I want, I want to help you. Like, like, the, the, even that trigger, like, I, I'm afraid of the phenomenon. I'm afraid of the experience. Like, I guess what I'm saying is if we stop taking these experiences that we have and we if we can just personalize them and say this is part of my journey this is part of my experience this is a part of my being that i am going to honor and that i refuse to renounce that's where i'm at with it i know you know i listen i'm a mental health counselor putting stuff out like this in a public format is not good for my Wallet. It seems that I've never been very good at doing things that were good for my pocketbook, right? It's not necessarily good for my reputation as a, as a counselor. They're going to be people that, uh, think about coming to me for counseling. They're going to look me up on Google. They're going to see something like this and they're going to say, no way in hell, right? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm still entitled to my religious beliefs. My, uh, I'm entitled to put those out there that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, but it, it can cause me to lose some clientele, right? But I refuse to dishonor that part of myself just because that may cost me some money or not make me popular, whatever the case may be. Right. So get rid of the hypnotic trigger. I don't want to do something right now. I haven't done this in a really long time. But if, if you have some of those hypnotic triggers where you're the stakes are so high, here's what I'm saying. We make the stakes too high. Oh, my God, I'm going to be part of this end time thing that was prophesied of this great falling away if I if I do this. And so I'm afraid to explore other spiritual paths or other spiritual traditions. I'm afraid to trust my own experience. I'm afraid to trust my own intuition. I'm afraid to ask my own questions because I might be deceived. That's a post-hypnotic trigger that has been put inside of you. It's a form of mind control. And so, you know, or what if I go to hell? What if I go to hell? <laughs> you know, there's lots of great stuff. I, I'd recommend, um, you know, my friend Jamie Inglehart. Um, you can find him in my friends list. Some of you know Jamie. He's he's done some great work on uh, exposing the lie of hell and the way it's written and put out in the Bible. You know, if that's something for you, that's someone I'd recommend that you get his books and listen to his materials, buy some teachings from him and stuff because it'll really set you free. 
if that's a struggle for you, because you need this stuff broken off of you. But I want to just take a minute, and I want to just have a sacred moment with you right now. If if you're afraid of being deceived, if you've got some of those post-hypnotic triggers, if you're still bound by some of that sort of mind control, I want you to just take a minute. I want you to give me your focus for just a minute. And I want to release something over your life right now. And whether you, it's, it, whether your paradigm is a spiritual realm, whether it's a realm of consciousness, or whether you're strictly just the psychological power of it. But I, right now, I want to speak to you with authority and I want to clear that out of your life. So, so what I'd like for you to do is just set your attention, intention. Just recognize, I still have a fear of being deceived. I still have a fear of going to hell. Um, there are things from my past and things in my subconscious that are still or, or that, that are over my mind. And, and so set your intention to be free from that. And right now, I just come alongside you and release you from that mind control. I release you from the power of that egregore. I uh, release a command hypnotically to undo that hypnotic suggestion and set you completely free from that so that you can honor your own experience, so that you can enjoy your own experience. Quit making it about, quit making the stakes so high. Quit making it so, taking it so seriously and making it so important. Allow, if you're having these experiences, allow it to be something that enhances your life, that benefits your life, that betters your life. Be free to enjoy it. <laughs> All right. I haven't done anything like that one time, but I could feel, I felt something. I felt the anointing. <laughs> I did. Um, I felt a presence and a power and authority on that. So I hope that helps you. Uh, I hope this video has been beneficial and helpful for you. Uh, again, just because of the nature of the way I stream this, I can't necessarily look at the comments real time, but um, this I, I definitely today will go back. Thank you for allowing me to be late. Those of you that jumped on to watch this two hours late on this Daylight Saving Sunday, um, thank you for doing that. I hope it was uh, valuable to you. I hope it imparted something into your life that's going to be beneficial to you, and I will see you next week. Bye.